So I'm going to hand over now um, to Andrew, um, Andrew Wilkins. He's um, a research fellow at Roehampton and he's PI on an ESRC-funded um, project called SAIS, or SAS, <laughs> School of Accountability and Stakeholder Education. Um, and he's investigating school governance and accountabilities in the changing educational context of England. And if you haven't had a look at his website, it's well worth going and having a look because he quite often gets um, different people contributing to what is a very stimulating blog and has a very, very vibrant um, research community going on on his, uh, on his blog and also on via the Twitter feed as well. So I'll hand over to you now. Thank you, Jacqueline. Um, so just to start, I probably won't say too much about the role or effects of Ofsted. I think that's actually been covered quite well. But what I do want to talk about is the, the impact of Ofsted on um, what is called school governance or what is sometimes called good governance. Um, so as Jacqueline said, this is a, um, a three-year ESRC-funded project um, looking in particular at the, at the changing role of school governance in the current education climate. Um, in particular, the, the impact of, of academization, um, increasing numbers of schools converting to academy status and uh, taking on all the additional legal responsibility and, uh, and management overheads that come with it. So it's, it's looking at the impact of those things on the role of school governance and also on changing notions of accountability and in particular, um, how schools, senior leadership, and school governance in particular, um, feel, or how they define accountability, to whom they are accountable, and how they work that into their practices as school governors. And these are a number of varied and somewhat disparate aims to the project. Um, and they're all interconnected, but uh, ultimately, principally, they are concerned with how and to whom schools view themselves as publicly accountable and what we mean by this notion of public accountability and uh, how they respond to accountability, accountability measurements um, on the basis of different skills, knowledge, and claims to expertise. Um, I'll talk briefly about the project, the context for the project, and and my interest in Ofsted today. Um, well, principally, I want to look at how Ofsted functions as a sort of spectre or, or shadow, if you like, um, on, on governance, um, and how it impacts how governors uh, see their role as governors and, and, and the contribution and the value they make in that role, um, and how they make sense of their role as meaningful and intelligible. Um, the... Um, the, the data collection for the project, as it says, consists of uh, nine different schools, primary and secondary, uh, two free schools, um, uh, converter and sponsor academies. There's one uh, academy chain in there, uh, a co-op school, and a few maintained schools. This is very much an in-depth, qualitative, ethnographic study of, of school governance. And these schools are situated in different parts of London and Norfolk. And they're all constituted differently um, as far as their leadership, management, and legal and funding arrangements are concerned. But ultimately, they all share an interest in what is defined as good governance and, and how they enact it and embody it 
um, in their practices as governors. Um, so the data collection consists mainly of, of interviews. As many as 91 have been conducted so far, and I'm in the process of working with one final free school. Um, so there should be as many as 100 interviews um, by the end of the project. Um, and and uh, don't confuse me with the flash. I didn't do all this on my own. I did have a research assistant, Dr. Adam Anamazanov from the Institute of Education, who worked with me for a year on this. And she was fantastic with helping me collect this data. So alongside interviews, there's observation material of full governing body, committee, subcommittee meetings, as well as a lot of documentary evidence. And I'm actually in the process of coding and analysing all this at the moment. So there's going to be a lot of writing coming out of the project over the next uh, few months, in addition to some of the outputs that have already been made. So to put the the project in context, um, under New Labour we had 210 academies established under um, the direction of their third way philosophy and it was uh, designed to enlist the help of private sponsors to offer, in the words of the then Department for Education, radical and innovative challenges to tackling educational disadvantage. And as you can see, since May there's been an accelerated trend in terms of the number, school, number of schools converting to academy status. Um, and this is largely because of uh, the coalition government introducing new legislation uh, which made it possible for all good and outstanding schools to opt out of local authority control <coughs> and become administratively and legally self-governing. So funded by the states but operating independent of local government steering and oversight. So in many ways the, uh, the creation of grant-maintained schools in the 1980s, the foundation later city technology colleges introduced under their local management of schools, ensured a similar administrative legal setup, state-funded and privately run pursuant to the contract of the Secretary of State. Um, now this is what we're seeing today, but obviously we're seeing it uh, in a far more uh, accelerated mode. And, um, Let's not forget that many schools up until recently were in some way administratively but not legally uh, self-governing. Um, they had limited control over budgets, premises and human resources and there are many maintained schools and some local authorities that do this today. Um, so, but legally the responsibility of the local authority and therefore responsive to an electoral mandate pursued by the local government. So there is, there is, but the, a huge number of schools today, as you can see by these statistics, are, are no longer maintained by the local authority, but certainly maintained uh, by other people. Um, academy chains, for example. So the spread of academies and free schools is unprecedented, numerous and variable, and um, different models exist from hard and soft federated. So you have something called a... Um, an umbrella trust model, a collaborative trust model, and we even have uh, co-op schools now. As many as 500, I know, have been established, which are all offering alternative models of school governance to academies, and that's very welcome at this time. So, academization, what does it mean? Well, you know, technically they're the same in legal terms. Um, academies and free schools operate independent of local government control enabling them freedom to determine their own budget, missions, length of school day curriculum, staff pay terms and conditions. Um, now what I want to talk about is some of these effects on the governing body and their role and their responsibility and how they see themselves in that role. And what we have here is a very high stakes environment with both the DfE and Ofsted demanding a more 
professional governing body and one that relies on um, very technicised skills, knowledge, and, um, and this is reflected in a lot of the government rhetoric, which I'm going to highlight. Um, so for those schools who are acting independently outside a local government mandate, there is always the risk of poor governance, poor training, poor evaluation, poor oversight. So increasingly, uh, government are looking to schools, to school governors, to fill the vacuum left open by the diminishing local authority. Um, arguably a kind of middle tier, or less controversial, but... Um, um, the government's recently proposed to have re, uh, regional commissioners who are hopefully going to fill, fill that gap. Um, and this, was, um, this is from Lord Nash, you may know. Um, and I just want to give you an indication of the government's view on school governors. And um, in many ways, like running a business... And we need more business people, expertise and skills. And following that and echoing that, um, this is a recently a proposal to uh, the Constitution of Governing Bodies for maintained schools. This is currently a consultation which is under review. But again, there's this focus on specific skills, uh, appeals to particular kinds of skills, knowledge and expertise. So, um, you know, the spotlight is firmly on, on school governors at the moment and the, and the role, responsibility and contribution that they make. We have something here from Michael Wilshaw on, on what may be considered uh, poor governance. Um, a focus on facts and analysis there from Gove. And also, I lifted this out of a, um, a chat which um, <coughs> was mediated by uh, a, a, a Twitter and later storified on the internet. And I found it really interesting the kind of uh, potential divisions he's throwing up between governors. So, so governors being labelled unskilled, lay, ineffectual. So there's certain tensions there within, I mean, and among governors themselves. <coughs> So just briefly to talk, just discuss what is school governance and it's banded around quite a lot so I thought it might be helpful to um, offer a definition or, or um, one or two actually. So I want to propose that um, it's a way to describe, to evaluate and to prescribe or objectify. So it, it's used to describe an administrative legal arrangement by which schools self-govern in the absence of local and central government. So in this sense, it refers to a phenomena, event, trend, or a movement in organization, an organizational form. So it designates the institu institutional arrangement by which schools practice self-governance. On the other hand, it produces a set of guidelines, procedures, and criteria by which schools can be shown to be self-governing effectively and efficiently. These templates, indicators, um, are often um, promoted by Ofsted and DfE, but also um, non-governmental third sector organisations, governor support services, NGA and such. A sort of network governance going on here. And then finally, uh, school governance is used to satisfy certain ends to establish the basis for a logic or reasoning or evidence on which objective knowledge can be usefully and correctly applied to school evaluation. 
So school governance in this instance means to prescribe or objectify, often through reiteration and rearticulation through these various agencies, which I've just named, um, and to specify the means and mechanisms by which good judgments and verdicts can be formulated, often on the basis of moral, technical, professional, and legal pronouncements. So where is the role of Ofsted in all this? Well, often uh, in any Ofsted report, they'll include a valuation of governance. And this is a recent one and indicates what, according to the DFE, are indicators of poor governance. Um, so good governance presumably includes uh, steering strategy towards development of long-term goals, ensuring accountability, specifically if it's a key role for school governors, to hold senior leadership and head teachers to account. Um, and I think that sort of goes back to what John was saying about mistrust. There's also a sense of mistrust built into the system where governors are also meant to be suspicious of what senior leadership are telling them. Um, and in addition to that, providing support in terms of directing, overseeing technical and finance arrangements. So there's a certain bureaucracy at the level of schools now which is being simulated in the absence of local authority. And some of the implications of this include um, schools prioritising skill-based governor appointments, downsizing the governing body to capitalise on skill base um, and reduce participation of non-skilled laypersons. Presumably people are ineffectual to the, the business, the running of a, of a school as a business. Weeding out passive or so-called amateur governors and basically ensuring school governors organise themselves in response to internal audit conducted by the school and external inspection led by Ofsted. And um, as one chair of governors reported recently in a TES opinion column, the role of school governor demands playing advocate for the school's defence in, in Ofsted's harsh court. Um, so arguably, uh, school governing bodies are a kind of new middle tier emerging here. They, they occupy the role previously performed by local authority, but increasingly within a, uh, a Kafkaesque environment. Uh, they're compelled, obliged... Uh, to respond to new bureaucratic pressures, responsibilities. So in the case of academies and free schools, top-down bureaucracy is re-simulated uh, at the level of the school governing body where it is ideally practiced on the basis of vigilant and constant self-surveillance and self-monitoring. And um, Mark Fisher um, and Gilbert and have observed bureaucracy has become decentralised it's not just something to which we are subject now, it's something which we are required to actively produce ourselves. Um, and these are just a few things that um, governors are required to respond to during an Ofsted inspection. And it just hints at the kinds of things that Ofsted are looking, are looking at evaluating in terms of what governors do. So what I want to suggest here is um, uh, Ofsted, while not always physically present, are, 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 a, perm are a permanent absent presence uh, over, over school governance, uh, a sort of spectre or shadow which, which ultimately sort of frames um, in advance uh, what, what constitutes uh, uh, good governance. So it's always already present in what they do. Um, and I've actually borrowed this term absent presence from Derrida, but I'm using it somewhat um, modestly and simplistically, um, just to show how Ofsted shapes the conditions of possibility and impossibility framing what comes to be enacted, understood, and made intelligible as good governance. However, I want to emphasize uh, the importance of agency and, and performative resistance, if you like, 
where subjects can interrupt, deconstruct, revalue, resist or derail the smooth flow of these dominant discourse and practices. Having said that, there's very little of that um, um, in this study. Um, and I suppose the reasons for that might be that school governors are, after all, volunteers. They're the non-exact part of the governing body. So those who perform the role do so on the understanding that they take on certain responsibilities. Those who fail to do so or refuse can voluntarily leave their posts. But I like to think that even this resistance, it's always anticipated and compensated through a neoliberal logic of continuous self-fashioning. School governors operate in a field of judgment in which there's always demands for performative efficacy, value contribution, Self-worth is intimately tied to necessity for adaptable, professional, always improvable selves. You need training. You need to interpret data. So subjects who retrain, reskill, upskill, who ask the right and proper questions, and who in the process internalize performance management as a disciplinary practice. So it's, evidence, it's evident from this extract that... Um, School governance is driven by technical demands and, and performance management, specifically the capacity and willingness of school governors to support and challenge senior leadership through careful reading um, and understanding of data pertaining to student performance and progression. And why? Well, because that's what Ofsted want to focus on. So a weak governing body is conflated with a disengagement from or a lack of understanding of data a governing body who uncritically accepts what is presented to them, goes unquestionably with the flow, the grain of consensus, uh, who fail to read between the lines, as one governor once told me, in contrast to a strong governing body who discern patterns or relationships in the data and cruci crucially seek justification or rationalisation, why, for decisions, uh, looking for occurrence of dips, blips and anomalies in the data. Um, so school governors are almost seem to be behaving, performing in, as if Ofsted were already there, uh, asking what would Ofsted do? Um, and to move on to some of the affects of, of this, um, governors regularly complain of feeling stressed and, and a state of panic waiting for an Ofsted inspection. Governors always on edge in defence mode. Uh, wedded to a permanent sense of foreboding. And it's interesting the number of uh, educationalists working in schools who use military metaphors to try and describe what they do. Um, leading my troops into battle, front line, rousing the troops, battle cries, and even putting your head above the parapet. Uh, um, and so, so governors, I suppose, to an extent, are also uh, sort of sounds controversial, sort of pseudo-inspectors and their auditors, they're watching over senior leadership, but they're also auditees, they're being watched over by Ofsted who inspects governors. But also the chair and leadership conduct their own skills audit to identify gaps in governors' competencies and skills using peer evaluation questionnaires and governance review performed by an independent source. So self-evaluation is typically conducted with Ofsted in mind. Ofsted's always already present. Um, and in this respect, uh, school governance can be considered a, uh, a, sort of signifying, uh, orientating practice, a method by which to objectify and make knowable 
in, in effect to secure the meaning and practice of what makes a good school, um, to make things measurable, inspectable, and intelligible through the construction of discrete, largely technical practices. And this is uh, definitely sort of a depoliticization uh, of what schools did, whereas it used to be um, underwritten by an, the, an electoral mandate of the local government, these things have been depoliticized. So political problems around um, distribution of resources and access to schools is now uh, the responsibility of the school, which apparently can be solved through the neutral language of efficiency, effectiveness, um, and all those things. This is actually I lifted out of a school improvement plan from a, from a school, and um, I think it just shows the extent to which Ofsted plays such an important role in how schools self-evaluate um, and consider what they're doing effective and efficient. Um, so, for example, the um, Ofsted Schools Data Dashboard, I'm sure you've all heard of this, um, and which has data for similar schools and all schools, and it, which is represented graphically in quintiles. Top is bad, bottom. Top is good, bottom is bad. And, is, and its intended uh, use for governors is uh, to drive improvement. Uh, in addition to this, Ofsted have, have introduced Raise Online, uh, this is an online digital archive offering reports and analysis of attainment and progress levels for all schools. So governors are encouraged to take this up, use it, interpret it, understand it, um, and, and on the basis of that knowledge, um, call into question and hold to account the senior leadership for decisions that they make. Uh, I took this from an observation of one governor's meeting just to give you an idea of how schools sort of Govern through offset, govern through numbers. Um, bearing in mind the observer effect, I was wondering what they might say if I wasn't there. You'll see they've said, uh, they refer to some students as the dodgy ones. Um, this idea that students are a kind of <coughs> unit of resource which is used to evidence performance and efficiency. But a, a, huge, a lot of governing body meetings are sort of driven by these sorts of, um, these sorts of demands, these sort of frameworks or paradigms, ways of seeing, understanding, making sense of, making intelligible what they do and rationalizing it. Um, so often what doesn't count towards an outstanding or good officer report is sometimes considered a secondary consideration, an afterthought, inexpedient or impractical, somehow inconsequential. So uh, sometimes the role of a governor emulates the role of the expector, and I argue. Ofsted engenders ways of seeing, knowing, understanding, and evaluating, which some governors value, as well as perform and inhabit, as essential to the robust monitoring of schools. And I'm sorry, I should give you more time to read these. And these are just a few snippets. I've got hundreds of examples of the impact of Ofsted and what governors do. And I think it's it's, it should be obvious to everyone that Ofsted has this impact. But when we think about what constitutes good governance and the frameworks and paradigms by which those judgments are made, I think it's always important to remind ourselves how much of an impact Ofsted makes. Um, uh, 
and here's further examples. Uh, good governance it creates a, a demand for um, professional standards, technical expertise, and high-quality governors with the right skills and knowledge. So Ofsted is always already present in much of what governors do and what is deemed to be a valuable contribution, what is deemed to be uh, a, a, a worthy or, 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 or critical challenge. Um, and I think it's interesting that John mentioned this idea of mistrust because I, I think it's, it's so sort of hardwired in, into what governors do and it's almost like it has to be there. There has to be this element of mistrust. Um, and uh, so governors are expected to be always suspicious of what they're being told. But then senior leadership can admit so much, which is perhaps one reason why inspection plays such an important role in some respects. So I just want to conclude this by arguing that um, at the beginning I talked about the, the, how the high stakes transfer of power and responsibility from central government to schools means increased risk, uh, risk of poor performance, poor training, poor evaluation as such. Um, so how does central government compensate for this? Uh, supplement this potential lack sacrificed by removing local government steering and commands, namely through the inspection, audit and professionalisation of school governing bodies, which governors in turn are expected to internalise and perform as part of their practice. So, um, so understood from this perspective, school governance, or good governance to be more exact, um, could be considered a new modality of state power and intervention a dominant or organising principle by which the government aimed to discipline schools and the performance of governors through interconnected processes of responsabilisation and normalisation and to achieve what power called in the 90s the control of control, so to the conduct of conduct, to do this all at a distance. So we hear a lot about autonomy and earned autonomy, but it's always conditional on following the rules, guidelines, templates... Um, which, uh, um, which are provided by Ofsted, DfE and the like. So while the official role of school governance is to hold senior leadership to account, this is their most important role, um, school governors are themselves held to account, surveyed, audited, cross-examined, in order that they perform their role effectively. So you could call this a form of meta-governing, a method by which government or non-governmental agencies, I mentioned the NGA, uh, one-stop shop governor services, 10 governor support, and there are many others um, that cultivate the conditions for reflexive self-organization. And um, <clears throat> when I was writing this presentation, I put this on Twitter, and I had what, a governor respond. In fact, can I say? She's in the room. She's here. I didn't mean to look at you, but Noreen's here. And Noreen said, speaking as a governor, I don't mind this absent presence. My choice is to be a gov, and I should be held to account. Um, so, and I'll end it on that. And, and just to say, if you wish to look, at, if you wish to know about anything, like evidence discussion or, or events or output relating to the project, there is a blog which I update regularly, and we have some great contributing speakers, including Jacqueline, who only recently wrote a blog. So I'll, I'll end it there. Thanks very much indeed, Andrew. That was very, very interesting.
Um, I just wanted to start, um, pick up the questions with one of my own, actually. I just wondered if, um, in light of what Melanie was saying before about stakeholders actually getting more out of, I don't think these were your exact words, but you indicated that stakeholders tend to get more out of the offset feedback in a way than actually schools do. Did I understand that correctly? No, the finding was that if stakeholders um, use inspection re reports, that that reinforces schools to use inspection standards for improvement. Okay, thanks. Mm. So then my question would be, um, do, you th do you see any evidence that school governors really welcome this additional interest by Ofsted in terms of it gives them something to then um, drive the schools on with, some external reference? Mm. Did you see any evidence of that? Um, oh, absolutely. Um, from the, res the research suggests that governors um, do value what Ofsted think. And often they'll hold their own mock inspection, do their own evaluation, peer evaluation, and even have someone perform um, an independent governance review, which is basically what they thought I was doing when I was there. Uh, interestingly, I wrote a, a final report for all these schools uh, which was tailored with recommendations and observations. Before I wrote the report, I consulted with all the governors and asked me, what do you want, what would you like me to say? Well, not say, but how do you want me to approach this? And they said, well, could you tell us if we're, if we're, if we're doing, doing it well? Are we performing good governance? Inevitably, that means consulting Ofsted. It means consulting the DfE. It means looking to what all these non-governmental third sector organizations are saying. Um, so in a way, um, that's not what I set out to do. And in some ways, I felt uncomfortable doing it. But I felt that I had to write something which was in the interest of the constituents, of my stakeholders, of my, my participants. And they valued that feedback. And it's almost governors are always looking to improve. And, and, I, and I use that word uh, in its broadest sense. Um, so, does that answer your question? Yes, yes, thank you. But this idea of... Uh, I'm not of the persuasion that all these discourses have already, always already constituted what people or agencies do. There's always going to be a resistance in, in, in how people perform. And, uh, but from, my, from what I gather, and we have two governors here, there seems to be very little resistance... Um, even a little cynical compliance I was hoping to see and I didn't even see much of that to be honest um, it was pretty much this is what is expected of us this is what we must do um, so. yeah, just on my I didn't want to say anything I want to say it quietly um, two things I mean, I'm interested to use the word shadow and spectre and I don't understand why, where those words come from because immediately that means something. Because mm. I don't think it's a good, good expression, is it? Shadow and spectre. There's a, there's a negative connotation to those words. And the other thing I'll say is you should see what it used to be like as governing bodies where it was left was on the left wing, you had the guy who came, and the right was on the right wing, the twin set and pearl, and there was a political divide in governing bodies, and there was no organisation, they were just people who came there because it was either a stepping stone for their future or a social day out. 
there's now more of a structure. And my governing body, I'm no longer ahead, I had great guys on it because they helped me. So if I had a legal person, we were doing something legal, they would support us. They didn't see their, their role as challenging the school so much as helping me support me to improve the school. And so I just, just worry sometimes, again, you know, this thing. Ofsted's given us, well, something's given us structure, which was very unstructured at one stage. And it really was. You know, we were talking about what toilet paper we put in the blooming place. It would be a political debate as to whether it was ISIL or soft toilet paper. You know, it literally got ridiculous, and it was done on political grounds. The left did their thing, the right did their thing. So decisions were not made on the best interest of the school. Now... If you have a good governing body, you, you have people who do have a skill that is useful for the school, you can mobilise that. My governing school governing body was in my school all the time. They walked into classes, they watched what were good lessons, and they saw what were reasonable. They didn't, they didn't monitor them, but they could see what, what we had to put up with, what we had to deal with, and how we had to cope, and how we had to manage things. So I just, again, I always just get slightly nervous where we... I don't think it's balanced when you use words like spectre and shadow. Where do those come from? I didn't realise there was such a negative connotation attached to these terms. Spectre is like an evil force above you, isn't it? I meant something that's, as I said, always already present. I didn't mean to use it in a negative or positive uh, context. Um, I just, it was just a way of saying how the things that people do and how they interpret those things are... Always like, hovering above us watching, about, you know, like a horror film tonight, hopefully after a few times. Uh, well, that wasn't my intention. One of the, an unintended, an unintended, another unintended consequence. Um, and also, I, 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 don't wish any, I don't wish to think that I, I'm saying that what governors do is, is, is any way wrong or the role of Ofsted in all this. I mean, I'm just trying to show some of the, the effects of, of the transfer of power responsibility, legal as well as administrative, to school governing bodies and their changing role responsibility and their composition I'm sorry if you feel that it I'm somewhere making a value judgment. It should be an important job, shouldn't it, being a governor? It should be an important role. Yes, of course. At this time, there is, of, co of course it is. Uh, it's a very high-stakes environment in which they're operating. And, um, and you know, when I speak, uh, I, the one school I was working with, um, <coughs> I gave them the final report, and the, the chair of the governors completely misinterpreted it as me saying, you've got to get rid of these people. I said there was tension within the governing body because they, were, they, got, they, were, they, they, they didn't have, a, 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 as far as their strategy was concerned, they wasn't moving in the same direction. So you, she used that as a way of saying, we need to get rid of these people, who also happen to be the most unskilled. And, when, and she was like, we need to weed out the deadwood. Now, I'm not going to make a judgment because I understand the conditions in which they're under. I'm just trying to understand those conditions, say this is how it came about, this is an effect of. I'm not going to make a valid judgment and say whether that or not should be well, the case. It would reflect the local community. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's an important role for, uh, a, a, for a stakeholder model of governance, which perhaps is being slightly sidelined as a result of this emphasis on skill-based appointments. And I think there's a, I think it's definitely room to have both. And bear in mind, I think... What tends to happen is schools that have a good or outstanding Ofsted report, as far as their governance goes, it goes off the radar. Whether they're engaging directly with their stakeholders in a way that with their parents or parent or student uh, constituents is sort of something that they can do themselves and often they'll judge whether it's effective or not. And there are some schools who do it incredibly well. 
Uh, and I think there are, there's room for good practice there. But whether other schools will take it up, well, the point I was trying to make is because of this emphasis, emphasis on, uh, on testing and performance, sometimes it can generate quite an <laughs> opaque picture of what schools should or should not be doing. And, uh, and I think there's certainly room for um, disagreement on a governing body. You talked about we've got good people here with the good skills who know what we're doing. Um, but and so there's got to be a range because, like, let's face it, they need to protect the, the, the community within which they serve. But then, right, so another question, so asking how they serve that, how they best serve that community, is it by simply <laughs> ensuring the uh, financial and educational performance of the school is one thing, yeah, that's yes. one part of it, Absolutely. and I don't disagree, but I think there's a lot else that schools could be doing because we're talking, we're talking here about issues of performative contract corporate and consumer accountability, but there are other forms of accountability that schools could be doing quite well in terms of engaging the community. One school I'm working with has a committee structure with a mandate that is engaged in the community, and they meet with these people, and they talk to them about the decisions that are being made, and they feed that back. I mean, I'm in the process of discovering if it's actually fed in and impacts key decisions at all. By doing that, they will, they will make sure that the students from that, that local community do, do it better by actually understanding the lo those, those children. So that's an important thing to do. It's important, yeah, a way of, of empowering yeah. uh, students and parents. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It was to, it, it was to pick up that last point about, as it were, what's at stake in governing. Uh, and, and my knowledge is less about school governors than it is about trustees and volunteers in lots of other governing bodies in the wherever the first and second sectors were there in the third sector. Uh, and, and there are two trends visible in the research. One is they all increasingly are me. That is, they are professional and middle-class people recruited into those roles. Uh, and I said it before lunch, and I mean it now, why would you trust me uh, to be a useful person? But the second is, even I am now displaced. Uh, because uh, I used to be a trustee for a significant voluntary organization, but my skill set, doesn't match the desired skill set for modern trustees. Uh, I am not a bearer of the right sorts of knowledge. And I do think that one of the things that goes missing in this uh, set of debates is about the multiple models of accountability that there might be and their invisible narrowing to a certain version of what accountability should look like. I don't mind. I've retired, so I don't mind giving <coughs> up my trusteeship. <coughs> but I think that uh, one of the skill sets I lacked was business-like knowledge. Mm. Development of the, um, the government body to take up some of the roles of the local authority was a new thing, and I think you're, you're right in a sense. But also, I think there's been the potential for that for over 30 years, ever since the Taylor Report of uh, the mid 70s. Um, 
enhance the role of the governing body, uh, almost along the lines of the, the sort of English private school model. Um, there's been the potential for that, and this battle about the role of the, of the governing body has been there. And it's put the emphasis very much on the single school um, as distinct from the system, as I think John was saying before. Well, you know, the, the system isn't there at all. Uh, and I think that, because as far as I'm aware, very few other countries, if any, have that's this sort of governing, the school governing, mm. emphasis, the whole emphasis on governors, uh, that sort of a role at, that, at the school level. And I think that probably needs to be borne in mind, mm. that there's been this potential and this gradually rising position. Now, whether they are suitable for that, Mm. to take that role from a, a body like, like a local authority is another issue, whether that's an appropriate model to fill in. But they've always been there, so it's all, that's always enabled the role of the local authority p to be reduced. Mm. But I can't remember whether you've got ch academy chains in your setup at all, but I was recently ex external examiner on a, a, a PhD uh, which was focusing on a, a single academy within a larger, one of the larger chains. And what was clear there was the governing bodies had no role at all, virtually, in that particular instance. Um, they weren't even involved in the appointment of their own chair or of the, or of the head teacher, the principal of the particular academy. Uh, mm -hmm. That was all taken at the top level. So that's actually a fundamental contrast mm -hmm. to the, the rhetoric about the importance of school governing bodies. Mm. Well, I'm actually, I did work with one academy of chain school and um, there was definitely a hierarchy built into that whereby the, the academy sponsor and the board of trustees uh, were effectively making much of the decision making uh, over, with regards to school governance. There was a governing body present, but they were constituted as an advisory group uh, with no statutory rights which I know are enforceable through judicial review. I know statutory rights you know, are an important part of affecting uh, governance and having the right to do so. And actually, incidentally, at the time they were looking to appoint a new head and th they were allowing two governors to sit on the uh, interview panel with the permission of the Board of Trustees. Um, the problem there being that all the governors were aware of the limited power that they had but it was an outstanding school and they wanted to be associated with it and they were proud of the school. So despite the lack of um, power they had over affecting um, higher order governance decisions, uh, they were still happy to be part of that group. Um, I was, to be fair, I was expecting more of them to kick up a bit of a fuss over it. But um, again, this goes back to the lack of uh, resistance, if you will, in some respect. And I know that someone, someone mentioned before about, um, you know, as long as you've got good people on the, with, with the right skills, it's kind of the Blair mantra, what matters, what, what, what works, a sort of pragmatic approach to education. And it's very much a depoliticization, isn't it, of education decisions. And, um, and I wonder, I wonder what, if there is room for a stakeholder model in all that. Um, and how it might be, how it might be maintained. Um, that's something I'm going to Yeah, well, they've got that sort of mutualising assets and having that kind of model, and, and there definitely needs to be more research into how effective that model is, actually. 
uh, but it's very promising, I think. Um. Uh, hi there, I'm Joe O'Hara from Dublin City University. Looking from outside of your system into it, I, I, I have two questions. Firstly, why do people become governors? Have you any sense from your research of why people actually do this job? Uh, and then secondly, given the different types of schools you're talking about, do you get a different type of governor <laughs> in these different types of schools? And if so, why? Or is there something that you think that leads you to, to extract in relation to how governance is, is, is modelled in different schools? Well, that was key to some of the interviews, was asking one, you know, tell me about yourself, your professional background, and two, what motivated you to become to a governor? And, of, and often there's a, a sort of altruism, civic-mindedness there, uh, wanting to, to, to contribute, to give back, to help a school. Uh, in the case of the academy chain, many of them were appointees, from the board, um, in which case their motivation was simply to satisfy their employers. And there's certainly a conflict of interest there when you think about it. N uh, not that that bothers the academy chain, I'm sure. But if, in terms of understanding what motivates governors, we have two here. I don't know if you want to tell us why you joined the governing body. Why did I join the governing body? Um, I've been a governor for about three years, and I'm now chair of governors for about five weeks, six weeks, seems a lot longer, um, girls' selective school in, in Kent. I became a governor basically I was interested in education. My, my daughter went through the school, and while she was there, I sort of joined in sports days and Duke of Edinburgh's and whatever. Found myself with a bit more time to spare once she'd left, and it seemed like something to, to be able to put back. I know that sounds a bit twee or whatever, something to put back into education, really from a, a, a genuine interest. I've got some other points I'd like to make, but perhaps... Knowing who's the, uh, the vice chair, who's really in charge. <laughs> uh, sorry, yes. Again, same, same reasons. I, um, I've been involved in education uh, throughout my life. I was, uh, but I stepped away when I had my children. And this was one way of getting back into the education sector without actually doing a, a job. Uh, and mm. um, and I've, I've loved it since. And um, I've decided to stay on as a governor. Um, I finished my term as a parent governor. And I, I've now become an appointed governor and the trustee. And uh, just one point, it's, um, it's the trust bit when you said that there's uh, that the governing body and uh, relation with the SLT is perhaps looks like mistrust to somebody on the outside. <coughs> it's, um, in some cases it will be when, when the relationship had bro has broken down, there will be mistrust. The governing body will not trust the SLT and vice versa. But um, in, if everything is working well and the relationship is fine, mm. just the questioning bit doesn't mean it's mistrust. Mm. It's, um, it's like you're presenting your results to us, mm. your project, and we questioning you about it just to understand how you go, went about it and what the results were. So mm. hopefully in good governing bodies where the relationships are working well, mm. that's, that's what it is. Mm. But uh, mistrust is only where relationships have broken down. Mm rather than the other way around. Mm. So can I just, Thank you, just a couple of notes I made on the way through. Um, we've mentioned challenge and support. I, mean, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, mm. and I, I see that as being our job, both challenge, but challenge for the good of the school and the good of the community, but mm. then support the, the head and the, the SLT once we've made the challenge in a critically friendly sort of way. I, I don't like the phrase critical friend, but I can't think of a a better one at the moment. Mm. And I, I don't like the sort of definitions. Of we, we talk about the school and the governors. You know, to me, if we look at a Venn diagram, mm. the school is the, 
the outside circle, and that is the governors and the staff. You know, we're in there separately, but we are all the school. You know, it is our school. It belongs to all of us and the stakeholders. So I don't like sort of the, when we make this distinction between sort of school where we mean the staff and then the governors almost setting us up to be, be something different. The, the stakeholder model is interesting. We became an academy three years ago. Three years ago, and I'm perhaps not being a little disingenuous to some of our governors, but you know, when Mr Gove talks about his worthies and people being there for the badge, mm. I could see that in maybe some of the, uh, the governors, but I think the, the days of sort of the tea and biscuits with the, the vicar-type approach are, are over, and I don't really know where that fits into the stakeholder model. Um, yes, we're volunteers, but we don't want to be seen as amateurs. We certainly don't want to be seen as amateurs by the the SLT, a professional bunch of educators mm. that we're meant to be critically challenging, so we really can't come across as amateurs to the, the SLT. You know, they have every right to expect more than that of us, so we need to be professional mm. in our approach. And there are some inconsistencies there with, with the stakeholder model. Um, yes, we have to take into account the stakeholders' views and wishes, but invariably stakeholders were elected, you know, parent governors were elected, and you tend again, this is going to sound bad, you tend to get to the people that put themselves forward for that sort of job, more a question of whether they might have had the time or the inclination than the skills, and more and more, you know, we, we need skills now. One thing we've talked about is sort of becoming an academy status and about the trust. You know, we are now a company, we are directors of a company, we have those legal responsibilities as well, mm. so we do need people with the skills, and, and the, I suppose the game is to get people from the stakeholder community with those skills would be the, the ideal way forward, I think. Mm. And we've talked about the, um, the LEA. Again, I think you know, in the past, the, the LEA was a, a useful sort of middle tier of management, let's say, that we could actually turn to for advice. You know, now, as an academy, we have autonomy, but uh, autonomy bears responsibility as well. So we have the skills hopefully, on the governing body, but we have no LEA to turn to. We, we can approach the DFE, EFA, but I'm not terribly sure they were set up to cope with what was coming their way when the academy programme started. So to try to get advice or leadership or to turn to quote your boss and say, what should I do now, that doesn't come from the EFA. Um, you know, by definition, we were told to go and play the market, to get advice you know, from the, the commercial folks out there, solicitors or whatever, should we need to, but of course that comes at a price as well. So that, I think, being an academy, you know, that's what we, we miss the most. Not that I was a, a governor during the LEA days, but we, we are now, we have got that autonomy and we've got to live with it, and it, it costs money um, to go and get it. Now, whether that saves overall or whether it was the, uh, the political game that uh, forced us down that route. Mm. So that's why we need the skills, and that's why we need professional governors, albeit that they are volunteers. Mm. Austed can help us and does help us this uh, because I'm, I'm passionate about training and I think it should be made mandatory but Michael Gov has said he's not going to make it mandatory ever but he hopes and that's what I expect now is for training to be mandatory through the Ofsted route that Ofsted when they come in to expect you will ask you about your training record as governors and if if um, if you don't deliver, <laughs> you're basically in trouble. So maybe training will become mandatory because Ofsted expects governors to be trained. And that's, that's one thing which I quite like about the absence, presence of Ofsted. <laughs> mm. 
And it's interesting, isn't that some of the consequences of this? I mean, you mentioned that increased cost, increased bureaucracy. Aren't these all the things that, uh, that were meant to be counteracted by some of these reforms? You know, less bureaucracy, value for money. With autonomy comes accountability right. and responsibility. And if we don't have that middle layer there anymore, I said EFA might give advice, but they're not going to actually tell us what we should do in a given situation. Mm. We, we, we go to the market and seek that advice, and there is a cost in that. And also, the, the rhetoric underpinning sort of the promotion of choice and diversity and provision, all these things, was about um, undermining uh, pro uh, producer capture, wasn't it? But aren't we exactly seeing that with these academy chains now? There's a monopoly over provision. Isn't this what they're doing in the way that... Anyway. I rather not go anywhere near it. It's a pretty but... Just the last thing we need how to account by Ofsted. Um, as mm. you asked Noreen if you could quote her. Um, yeah, I hold or we hold the head and the SLT to account, so I see no reason why we should not be held to account for the role that that we do, after all, we're volunteers. Mm. As Norman said, if we, we don't like the kitchen, we can walk yeah, out. Yeah. I suppose it's this idea of autonomy that I just struggle with. When you consider everything that we've just discussed and how that autonomy is earned or conditional on, on you know, you following those guidelines, those rules, those indicators. So it's sort of that, that governing that takes place at a distance, if you will but it's enforced for all these different governmental and non-governmental agencies that interest me. I mean, this is Norwegian, but just so you... Sorry. Just so... You know, we, we, we've recently gone through a process of recruiting a head, mm. uh, a new head teacher. We've been involved in a few other issues that we've had to resolve ourselves. Mm. Uh, again, we're volunteers, so it's not a whinge, but just so you know, I think we've probably spent about 20 or 30 hours between us per week mm. on governance in the last five or six weeks. So it's not an easy job, and I don't think we're sort of deliberately lapping it up. That's the time it, it actually took. Thanks. Yeah, we're running a little bit short Sorry. of time. So one last question. Quick question, Melanie. Well, maybe just an, uh, not specifically a question, but in addition to the debate in relation to your comment about, about autonomy, um, it seems that... An, Another relevant issue here is that, uh, and this is also me talking from a Dutch context where school governing bodies are expected to have a role in also delivering a kind of variety in quality, in ensuring that there is variety in the system, in quality of schools, in terms of school choice. Um, and that, that is the purpose of autonomy as well, to ensure that there is some kind of variation between schools that would allow parents to choose a school that fits, um, that has a different profile. Um, and, and all these layers of evaluation that are so strongly aligned or becoming more aligned uh, to an, a centralized inspection framework seems to uh, limit that kind, that level of variety and that level of different profile, um, uh, and I, 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 that that seems to be the story from your uh, research as well. Uh, that um, 
that strong alignment between all these levels of evaluation uh, limits a variety in an education system overall. Innovation, any ad hoc experimentation. What you described sounds quite similar to the Swedish system, actually, in terms of how autonomy is understood and practiced and, and sort of engendering variation in the system. To explain yeah. that if you are in the academy, you've decided to yeah. go down the academy route, have you used that freedom which has been given to you? And that will be one thing they'll be looking at. So hopefully mm. that will, again, concentrate minds and, and do exactly what you've said. Hopefully. Yeah. Still about high yes. Yeah. yeah, sorry. My, my, <laughs> <laughs> my slightly selfish interest in, in variety is I, I'm looking for variety for a, a curriculum that will attract and suit and bring the best and give the most opportunity to the, the students and potential students of my school. I'm after a USP for my school to get bums on seats. Whether I offer something different to the other six schools in the area just to give a variety to the whole community, I'm actually a little bit more selfish than that. I need to attract people to my school and then give them the best opportunities that I can within my school. And I guess that's where the autonomy bit probably works against the greater good maybe okay thank you very much indeed Andrew thanks